Welcome to Going Back, 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 the sports history podcast with all the stories you need to know and some you don't. My name is Brian Gay, and here with me is my co-host, Tom Young. Each week, Brian and I will be choosing a story from this week in sports history. And this episode, we got a big one for y'all. We have a story from February 19th to February 25th. We'll also be covering some of the current hot topics in sports, all drinking a few cold local beers and seeing where the night takes us. All right, Brian, so this fact we're going to start off the show tonight with touches back on last episode's topic of the immaculate inning in baseball with when a pitcher throws nine pitches, all nine are strikes, and records three outs. So before I get into that fact today, Brian, any idea how many immaculate innings there are uh, in the history of baseball? Mm, No, but it's not a lot. It's probably more than you think. There's been 112 immaculate innings. That's a lot more than I would would have expected. So six different pitchers actually did it last year in the 2022 season, and there's been three separate guys who have done it more than once. So I'll give you a chance at redemption here. Any okay. idea who's done it more than one time? Done it more than once. I feel like you got to think about because it's a measure. I feel like of accuracy and just filth. Are they big names? Are there some big names that have done it? I would say all three are big. Two are actually still current pitchers in the league. Current pitchers. My guess on that would probably be Kershaw. That is incorrect. Okay. Give me two more. A lefty. Lefty in the right ballpark, though. Lefty. And when I say ballpark, I don't mean same Dodgers. Okay. See, just, okay. I was that, you had me thinking there. Just in, in the right realm by oh, choosing a left-handed geez, pitcher. I don't know, man. Because um, the next people, next two, I, there's two I want to say. One is DeGrom, but I'm not sure he's done it. He has not. No. And I'm probably going to be 0 for 3 because my other one I want to say is Strasburg because there was a point where he was really nasty and I could see him having done that. So Strasburg is not correct either, but this guy has been a teammate of both Steven Strasburg oh. and Jacob DeGrom. Is it Scherzer? Correct. He would be Oh, uh, damn. He would have been one of my next guesses. Then you have Chris Sale. He's the lefty. Yeah, I wouldn't have picked that one up. And then all-timer Sandy Koufax. That does make sense. They've actually each done it three times. Sale is not surprising. I just, like, I feel like I haven't heard his name in quite a while so he's been he's had the injury bug the past couple years seems like he's finally coming into spring training healthy for once so we'll see what type of season he has i'll be curious to see if he still has that same filth he's had after years of injuries and no full seasons and it's hard to hard to maintain yeah i mean you can only hope you don't like to see injuries in any sport but that brings me to our fact here so in a round of golf a perfect round is considered to be where a player hits every fairway and every green on all 18 holes in the round so i found this one from golf digest they put it out the other day on their twitter page so in the history of golf there have been only 27 players to complete a perfect round so to put that into perspective for everyone a tour pro tour pro on average plays about 78 rounds of golf each season so most golf historians trace the beginning of the PGA Tour back to late 1968. So the tour is going on its 55th season. Currently, there's about 150 to 175 players that play each week. And most events have about 150, depending on the size of the field that week. So follow my math here. The tour has been around for 55 years. There's about 13,650 rounds per year. So you're going to times those together. It gives you about 750,000 rounds in total over the course of the PGA Tour history, and only 27 players have ever completed the perfect round. I mean, you saw me at your birthday shindig last weekend, and I I could see why. 
I think I was 27 over that day uh, through like 11 holes. So yeah, I think we got in 13 or 14. Yeah, not good. So yeah, I'm not surprised because golf is so hard. But that, so you said 27 perfect rounds out of 750,000. Correct. So it's like point zero 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 three five percent. Hell yeah! Hell yeah! I don't even have anything to say to that. It's just unbelievable. I can't even imagine doing that. I feel like I can miss the fairway playing mini golf. So this past weekend at the Genesis Invitational, Rory, Tiger, and JT were all playing it around together. Over the first 12 holes, Rory, I believe, was re- leading them in greens hit, and he only had four of 12. The other, the other two had three of 12. Yikes. I think I might have hit four greens in my whole life. So that just goes to show how, I mean, granted, Riviera Country Club is a much is a very difficult course compared to the average average course out there on tour each week, but still it just puts into perspective how difficult and truly amazing how the, um, this feat really is. Well, and you think about it, if the one, if Riviera was that, is that difficult of a course compared to the average course and the average courses still haven't allowed for more of these perfect rounds. That's a pretty, that's a pretty tall task. I'm happy when I hit like five fairways in a round, you know, five greens in a round too. Yeah, dude, my best shot of the day is the one that I split the fairway. Granted, you golf, I, I don't. You dabble I, around in it, hit the. I hit definitely the range. dabble. Yeah, I definitely would not consider myself a golfer. I know how to do it. Do I know how to do it well? No, absolutely not. But I also think in today's game, hitting the fairway has gotten so overrated, just because the focus has become. Let's see, just how far I can hit the ball. The rough isn't as penalizing, especially in your weekly tournament. You get to the U.S. Open, maybe it's like five, six inches deep the rough, and you're going to put a little more ac- a little more value on hitting the fairway each time. Sure. But when in, I can hit it 350 and be off center, but I can be three 280 in the center, like what would you rather be? Well, yeah, especially if you're, three, if you're 350 and you're not, not middle of the fairway and you're hitting from the rough stuff, odds are you're hitting – you know, 130 from the rough stuff instead of 170, 180. So I think it's just, I mean, it'd be a no brainer for me to line up that shorter shot. I feel like, especially if you're a very seasoned practice professional. Yeah. The tour pros, I mean, you put a hundred, 125 yard distance in going into the green each time. They're more definitely much more likely to be hitting the green compared to 190, 200 out. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, it's fascinating. There's so much like, it's honestly so much science that goes into golf. And just like the and the little differences, little tweaks that you can make to try to change your game. But the fact that only 27 people have ever played perfect rounds of golf or 27 perfect rounds of golf out of over 750,000 since the start of the PGA is pretty outrageous. Good for them. Something yeah. I'll never do. Yeah. So if I do, I might just quit and never play golf again. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know what? Uh, it's like, where do you go from there? Um, so, Tom, we obviously missed last week's episode, so we didn't really get to touch on this, but we got to talk about that Super Bowl. Disappointment. I mean, you're up 10 at halftime as the Eagles. Not going to lie, I was feeling pretty good. I mean, yeah, I they looked how like can they, you not? They looked fully in control of the game at that point. And Patrick Mahomes leaves the leaves halftime with a bum ankle, I guess you could say. It looks like he re-aggravated the injury. Yeah, I was, you know, I don't ever want to wish injury on somebody, but I saw him limp off. I feel like that. There's part of me that was like, oh, awesome. This is great. The birds can, like, this will make it e- way easier. Chad Henney is not a threat. But at the same time, like, I feel like you want to, to beat Mahomes. You know, like, you don't want that asterisk, even though there is 
some questionable stuff that came out of that game. Like the, I've heard, been hearing a lot of rumblings about the quality of the field and the fact that the, uh, you you saw that little conspiracy theory, right? That the turf guy or turf doctor, whatever they call him, is a lifelong Chiefs fan. I didn't see that one, but it's interesting how you spent, oh, yeah. I think it was what, 800 grand to prepare the field over the last two years and for it to be that awful yeah. for the biggest game of the year is just really disappointing. And with the Eagles, it really affected them, I think, more than the Chiefs. The Eagles have that pass rush where you have Brandon Graham on the outside, Hassan Raddick. We touched on him a few times over the past couple of episodes, 19 and a half sacks in 19 yeah. games. His whole thing is beating you on the edge, dipping under you as the offensive lineman, and using his speed to get around you. When you got someone who's trying to like bull rush up the middle like Chris Jones of the Chiefs, it makes a difference. Yeah, for sure. Well, and Chris Jones is a, a freak of nature within himself, but there, I, I heard some fact listening to... Uh, w- WIP last week on uh, Angela Cataldi's last week on air, and uh, they shout got, out to Angela. Yeah, what a, what a, a goat, a legend. I couldn't stand the guy when I first moved down here because his voice just takes some getting used to. But then it's like riding along with a friend. So, uh, great for him to get re- to retire and move on to not have to wake up at three in the morning to be on air. Hey, happy retirement, Angelo. Wish you the best. <laughs> um, but what I had heard was, um, the Eagles all year. With their, I mean, 70 sacks, one of the highest totals of all time. They were constantly rotating those edge rushers throughout the year. And then for some reason in the Super Bowl, it was, they're like two, they, they ran, rushed the same two edge rushers on 81% of their plays. I think, I don't remember exactly who it was. I want to say it might have been, I don't remember exactly which ones they were, but it was the same two edge rushers on 81% of the downs. Whereas all season, they were switching up edge rushers all game, keeping them fresh, letting them get in there, letting them get after the quarterback. Just another reason that I'm not even an Eagles fan, but I'm happy to see Jonathan Gannon go. He's going to be a mess in Arizona. <sighs> Bum. I remember. I remember now that you know, thinking back on it, I remember felt like Hassan Raddick was out there all the time. Same with Joshua. And at one point, in like the second quarter, I'm like, man, I feel like I haven't even seen Brandon Graham on the field. Like, where has he been? So yep. that definitely checks out with so what you're saying. When very you, well, I think what, Sweat and Reddick would make a lot of sense. But doesn't Reddick, again, probably didn't watch enough of the Eagles this year. Reddick typically rushes from the stand-up position, right? He's not a, he's not on the like hand-down kind of guy. Every once in a while goes hand-down, but seems more like not linebacker dropping that far back and coming yeah. in, but he is standing up when he's on the line of scrimmage. Yeah, so I, I mean, either way, it's just interesting that you would revert to that in the Super Bowl of all things, when all year you had the best pass rush in the league. So it's tough to, it was tough to watch. That second half was, was ugly. Obviously the penalty on the, the hold on Bradbury just, I, it didn't impact the play. I, I don't think if, if he didn't hold him, quote air quotes, big major air quotes there, if he didn't hold him. I, there's no, I don't think there's any chance that, Juju gets close to that throw. It was a bad throw. It was way over his head. I just don't think it was happening. So it just felt like one of those things where the NFL, they did it for Brady for so long. He just happened to seem to get the convenient flag. Always gets the call at the right time. Right when he, yeah, right when he needed it. Kept the game, kept them in the game. Basically gave them the game at that point. Other uh, The Eagles would have gotten the ball back. And it just sucks to see because what was a really great game just went out with a whimper. Yeah, to me, I mean, I get Bradbury. He admitted he held Juju and was hoping the refs didn't call it. 
to me in that in that situation, if you don't call a similar play in the first half, because there was a similar hold in the first half on Bradbury on Juju, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. If you don't call it then, why are you going to call it when there's two and a half minutes left in the game and really just alter the ending and not really give the Eagles a chance to get the ball back with any time to do anything? Ten yeah. seconds, eight seconds, whatever it was when they got it back, you get one play maybe. And on that play, it looked like Jalen Hurts even slipped trying to throw the ball, and that's why it only made it to like the fifteen yard line. Oh yeah, I know that was a that was not a a great throw on his part. But again, not much was going. I can't imagine much would have happened even if he got a better throw on that ball. It just it, it kind of was what it was at that point, and it just it was it was unfortunate to see. But the thing is, for me, that with that call is that plays like that happen in the secondary all the time. Yeah, like every snap almost. All the time. Why are you waiting to make that call until literally the most crucial play of the entire game? The most crucial play of the entire game. Because if they get that stop, they get the ball back, and they're heading downfield to, uh, what was it? Was it 35-35 at the time? It wasn't. Buckers, he has a longer field goal. Yeah. He probably makes it. He's a good kicker. Sure. But the Eagles at least have two minutes, two timeouts. To get down and at least tie it. Right. And then we're probably going to overtime. If That's if the Chiefs don't stop them and allow the, the Eagles to get in the end zone. Yeah, so either way, it's unfortunate. I think Eagles fans have taken it a lot better, taken the loss a lot better than I expected. But honestly, I think it's because you guys did win five years ago. Um, So you, it's not that that burn when isn't there like it was. Everyone seems to have taken it a lot better than I anticipated. I also think it helps when you're facing Patrick Mahomes, who's probably the. I mean, I'm not going to have any argument against it. I say he's the best quarterback in the league right now. Oh yeah, no, 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 he is. So when it's against him, Andy Reid, as we all know, Philly fans, former coach of the Eagles, sure. I think it maybe doesn't sting as much. Still hurts, especially when you're up ten and you have a ten point lead going into the second half. Yeah, but I mean, hey. It was a great game. Brian, I think you had the score right. You predicted 38-35. Yeah, wrong way, though. But wrong you just direction. said the Eagles were going to win. So Damn, that would have been so cool. But I just I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to call for the Chiefs to win as much as I like. That was really a coin toss of a game, and I would have guessed that score either way. But I'll, I'll ride with my projection. My prediction. I thought it was going to happen, and man, was it close. Hey, like we said, we said take the over. The over cleared by miles, 51 oh, yeah. and a half. Final yeah. score, 38-35. Yeah. Brian, yeah. quick math, that's what, 73? 73, yeah. Over by 20 points, just about. But, hey, unfortunately, the Eagles lost. It is what it is. Oh, well. From, from my perspective, yeah, exactly. Oh, well. Haven't been the Eagles fan, my biggest Eagles fan my whole life. But we're on to Phillies baseball, and that's what matters most. Absolutely go, Phillies. But, hey, before we uh, we go into our story, which is a, a story that everyone can cheer about, we're going to hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. This episode of Going Back, Back, Back is brought to you by Rucci Heating and Cooling, LLC, located in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania. For all of your heating, air conditioning, and plumbing needs, call the professionals today at 484-849-1015. Rucci Heating and Cooling, LLC, the one-stop call for your business and or home. Call them again at 484-849-1015. All right, and we're back. Tom, big story today. Uh, I think it's a story that lives on and will continue to live on in the history of not just hockey, but the American sports culture, the history of American sports, and that is the miracle on ice. Not even just sports, the history of America. Yeah. I mean, if Yeah. There was so much political tension between 
America and the Soviet Union the middle the Cold of the Cold War. War. Yep. And it's just a great story. So I, I felt like it just had to be recapped. Brian was in agreement. We're not going to do two stories tonight. We're going to solely focus on the Miracle on Ice. Yeah, there's just so much that can be covered in this story. And uh, it takes us back to, you know, something that I've already covered and I've been a big fan of, the Olympics. But also just an amazing story. Uh, the movie Miracle on Ice from Disney. We both talked about how great of a movie that is. Um, so when you brought this topic up, I know I was 100% on board. And, it, yeah, you definitely can't give this justice in a, you know, 15, 20-minute span. So let's uh, let's rock it out and talk to you guys about the Miracle on Ice. So the story begins with Coach Herb Brooks. Coach Brooks played for his country in two separate Olympic games and was actually the last man cut from the 1960 U.S. Olympic team. He spent the decade of the 70s as head coach of the Minnesota Golden Gophers, leading them to three NCAA titles, um, a program that is still incredibly strong today. The Minnesota Golden Gophers produce a lot of very good hockey talent. Um, and his tenure there also earned him a reputation for his strong personality and his detailed preparation as the coach. So Coach Brooks was tapped to lead the team, and he, uh, he spent about a year and a half with his assistants assembling that team. He held numerous tryouts in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Massachusetts, U.S. hockey hotbeds. His camps emphasized speed, stick handling, physical conditioning, and discipline. Um, they also included psychological testing and a strong knowledge of international hockey. Hundreds tried out for the team, but only a handful were selected. Um, the most notable being uh, Dave Christian, Mark Johnson, Ken Morrow. I think the biggest two names here, though, are Mike Ruzioni and Jim Craig, who all went on to have solid NHL careers. Um, this was back in a time when NHL players were not allowed, or the U.S. did not allow, or the NHL, I believe, might not have allowed uh, their right, players the to participate in the Olympics. So the U.S. was being, um, the team was comprised of college students and amateur players. So uh, Co- Coach Brooks actually passed on some of the best college players at the time, preferring to pick players he thought would come together and win a medal. It's more about team over self, which is, I mean, I, you and I both played a lot of team sports. I think a lot of the best teams I know I've played on maybe, maybe didn't have one stud. But it was a bunch of a bunch of guys that knew what they were doing. Yeah, and knew their role. When you, when you get that like bonding feeling with the team, you care about each other. It goes a long way compared to that one quote unquote superstar and then a bunch of more or less scrubs. Yeah, you're and playing for each other as well. Yeah, you're playing for each other and the the name on the front, not the name on the back. And that's something that was definitely emphasized in the movie. Oh yeah, you're going to play for the name on the front, not the name on the back. And if you remember when they're doing the um, that skating drill. Yeah, suicides up and down the rink, and then finally, I think it was a Ruzioni. It was st- steps up and is like, "I'm playing for USA," and I believe he attended BC or BU. I forget which one. Yeah, but that was the thing. All the all these guys are coming in trying to make a name for themselves, playing for the name on the back. This way, they can go on hopefully have a good NHL career. But Brooks wasn't having that. If you're not playing for the team, the the logo that's on the front of the jersey, he didn't want you. Yeah, he wanted to win a medal, and he wanted to do it for his country, the United States of America. So in 1980, the U.S. hockey team played a total of 61 pre-Olympic games, almost an entire full schedule, uh, beginning in Europe on September 3rd of 1979, and it ended on February 9th, 1980 at Madison Square Garden in New York. Uh, the U.S. team played their home pre-Olympic games at the Met Center in Bloomington, Minnesota, and finished with a record of 41 wins, 17 losses, and three ties. In regards to the 1980 U.S. team pre, uh, pre-Olympic results, the squad was actually winless in four games against NHL teams in September exhibition games. They were outscored by a margin of 24-8. to 8. 
And then the 1980 US team actually only won three of seven games against Canada, despite outscoring them 28 to 22. I mean, no surprise losing to the NHL teams. You're a bunch of college kids against Pros. grown adults. Yeah. I mean, imagine this story. This wouldn't have even been, probably wouldn't have even been a story, at least not nearly the story of the capacity that it is, if the NHL players were playing on this team. Because there was a lot of really good talent in the NHL at the same time that could have could have represented the U.S. Well, you would think, but I mean, there was those um, Canadian Cup games, I think it was called, where it was more or less like the NHL All-Stars versus the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union was usually beating the NHL All-Stars. Well, yeah, they were a well-oiled machine, which I know uh, we'll, we'll touch on here in just a little bit. Um, going back to our team, though, the U.S. of A., they also played a series of home-and-home home games with each team in the Central Hockey League, um, which were, was comprised of a few teams that, mainly teams I, I don't imagine any exist now, Salt Lake City Golden Eagles, Indianapolis Checkers, Fort Worth Texans, Birmingham Bulls, Tulsa Ice Oilers, Houston Apollos, Oklahoma City Stars, Dallas Blackhawks, and Cincinnati Stingers. There's a good chance that they might exist in another form these days, but I could probably guess that none of them do now in oh. that, in, with those names. Off the top of my head, I don't know any of them. So yeah, no, they I've always don't been, exist. I've always been interested in the minor league sports systems, and I don't recognize any of those names. So in those eighteen games versus the CHL teams, the U.S. Olympians' uh, record was fourteen wins, one uh, tie, and three losses. They outscored their opponents eighty-five to fifty-seven. And then in uh, December of seventy-nine in Lake Placid, the U.S. team won the pre-Olympic tournament, going undefeated in four games, outscoring teams fifteen to six with. Uh, wins over a 4-2 win over Sweden's B team, a 3-1 win over Canada, a 3-0 win over Czechoslovakia, and a 5-3 win over the Soviet Union B team. The most famous pre-tournament game, though, is when the Americans faced off against the Soviets, uh, the Soviet A team one week prior to the Olympics. The studs. Yeah. The, the big boys. <laughs> the Soviets. And they were just straight up massacred. Just an absolute domination. The Soviets went on to defeat the Americans 10-3 to at Madison Square Garden in New York. Just, a, again, just a week out from the Olympics. This was supposed to be a, a tour for the Americans to show off and for them to show off their team. But if anything, it definitely left the players and their country thinking that there's no way we can beat these Russians, these Soviets. Yeah, I don't know how you could. I mean, just getting demolished 10-3 to like that. That doesn't just that doesn't happen by accident. You don't accidentally score ten goals. No, team morale has to be pretty low at that point. <laughs> yeah. So um, that little bit about the the Olympic team heading into the games. All right. So at this point, we're going to touch on how the tournament itself works for the Olympics. So going into the games, the teams are actually ranked and divided into two separate groups. The teams they were ranked based on how they performed during the nineteen seventy nine World Ice Hockey Championships. So included in that were the eight teams from the top division, which is Pool A, as well as the top four teams in the 79 second tier B pool tournament. So while Poland, they finished eighth in Pool A, the Netherlands, actually winners of Pool B, were ranked ahead of them going into the Olympics. So here's how the rankings broke down. Soviet Union ranked one, Czechoslovakia two, Sweden three, Canada four, Finland is fifth, West Germany, if you remember, Germany was split into two at that point. So West Germany is six. The U.S. somehow ranks seventh. Netherlands, eight. Poland, nine. Romania, 10. Norway, 11. And last but not least was Japan in 12th. And they were actually only in the tournament because East Germany actually bailed out and did not participate 
in the Olympics for the for that year. You said that you're surprised by the U.S.'s ranking in that, but like when you look, when I look at this, I mean West Germany. I I feel like you could flip flop those. The Germans have never been really known for their hockey prowess, but I probably would have put all those other teams ahead of them. As and then as well, though Netherlands, Poland, Romania, Norway, Japan aren't exactly hockey powerhouses either. So I think it's and it seems like a pretty fitting ranking if you ask me. Yeah, especially at the time, like like we just said. It wasn't NHL players playing for the U.S., all no. college kids. But the Soviets, they've been playing together for years at this point and were an absolute powerhouse winning lots of tournaments before this. And that's something we'll touch on here shortly. Well, and if I'm correct, uh, most of the Soviets, or if not all of them, that was their full-time team, was the national team. Whereas correct. all these other Olympic teams were playing in other areas or like the U.S. was playing in college. Meanwhile, the Soviets... They played for the Soviet Union. That was their team. Right, and one of the another famous Soviet Union game is when they actually played the Philadelphia Flyers. They played the Philadelphia Flyers, I think it was in the mid to late 70s, and what had happened was the the Russians, and this is when the Broad Street Bullies were. I was going to say, I, Broad Street Bully era. Yeah, Broad Street bully, ho- uh, bully era hockey for the Flyers, and I think it was Ed Van Imp uh, slashed one of the players on the Soviets, and the Soviet team walked off the ice. Yeah, well, the Soviets, I mean, I'll touch on that here in just a minute, but they were not known for being like a physical, overly physical, aggressive kind of team. Um, they tried to tend to avoid that physical play. So I'm not surprised. Meanwhile, because the Broadway, you know, you get the nickname the Bullies for no reason. Yeah, when you got Dave Schultz just going out there and beating people left and right. Yeah, you got the team, one team that plays a very non physical game and one team who is ready to snap your neck at the drop of a hat. So. So the only reason that game continued was, if I'm not mistaken, Ed Snyder, former owner of the Flyers, rest in peace, Ed Snyder, went down to the locker room and said, if you guys don't go back out on the ice, you're not going to get paid for playing tonight. Well, that's a good way to get people moving. So Neil say they got back out on the ice and the Flyers ended up <laughs> winning the game. Hey, all right. I don't know if you're for the Flyers, but if it's against the Soviets, I'm on board. Win's a win, right? Yes, sir. So of those 12 teams I just mentioned, they're then divided into um, two groups, six teams in each group. So each team, they'll play five games in pool play. If you win your game, you get two points. If you tie, one point. If you lose, you get zero points. So pretty basic there. And then the top two teams in each pool advance to the medal round. So you had the blue uh, division. This division consisted of Czechoslovakia, Norway, Romania, Sweden, West Germany, and the United States. Hey, I'd take our chances in that pool any day. Seemed like it worked out in our favor. Yeah, the Czechs can be scary, but maybe the Swedes for sure. I mean... But, yeah, I would take our chances in that pool any day. So it turns out the U.S. actually did pretty well in group play. First game they play against Sweden, they tie 2-2. Two to two. Got to be happy with that result. Game two against Czechoslovakia, where, like I mentioned, they were the second-ranked team coming into the tournament. The U.S. actually beats them 7-3. to Whoopow! Next up for the Americans in group play is Norway, who they also handily beat, um, outscoring them 5-1. to Whoopow! Following that win was a matchup against Romania, who they defeated very easily and won 7-2. Wow! Now, last up in group play is West Germany. The Germans, they actually get out to an early 2-0 lead over the Americans in the first period. By the end of the second, the game's tied at 2-2, and then U.S. actually goes on to win the game 4-2 by scoring two goals in the third period. That's what I like to hear. So the U.S. team surprised many hockey fans and actually finished 4-0-1 during group play to head into the medal round. 
During group play, goalie Jim Craig stopped 98% of the shots he faced, and the team played with discipline and stuck to the uh, coach's game plan, which is a, a trending theme under Coach Herb Brooks. Hey, it was 98. Give him credit. It was 98.6. That's might as well be 99%. Yeah, round up here. Yeah, round. Sorry. That's a good rounding up. That's one worth rounding up. Sorry, Jim. <laughs> Show the man some respect, Tom. All right, so advancing from the blue division will be Sweden and U.S. Since Sweden had the better goal differential, they ended up, ended up being the winner of the blue division and sets them up to face the lower seed from the red division. Now, in that red division, teams consist of Canada, Finland, Japan, Netherlands, Poland, and the Soviet Union. To no one's surprise, the Soviet Union went undefeated in pool play, scoring 51 goals while only allowing 11. <laughs> to put that into perspective, the U.S. managed to score 25 goals in pool play, but did allow one less goal than the Soviets. For those who need to break out those calculators at home, that would be 11 minus 1, which equals 10. Big maths. Math is hard sometimes, so hey, I get it. The dominance displayed by the Soviets was clear throughout pool play as they beat Japan 16 to nothing, beat the Netherlands 17 to 4, Poland by a score of 8 to 1. But then they did have two closer games against Finland and Canada. The Soviets beat Finland by a score of 4 to 2, followed by a high-scoring affair against Canada where they win 6 to 4. So you got Sweden and the US out of the blue division, the Soviets and Finland out of the red division. Now, the outcome from their pool play matchup between the two advancing teams actually carries over to the medal round. The U.S. and Sweden are tied, giving them each one point since they tied facing each other. And then since the Soviets beat Finland 4-2, they have two points going into the medal round. So, headed into the medal round, you got the Soviet Union at two points, Sweden, U.S. at one, Finland at zero. That just feels wrong. Like, Yeah, it should be reset. Yeah, should be wiped clean to start the... the the new the, the medal round for sure. Yeah, so how the matchups were, Soviet Union versus the U.S. is correct. Sweden versus Finland, got it, but it should just be zeros across the board. You yep. win your game, you're going to the gold medal. Absolutely. So heading into the 1980 Winter Olympics, the Soviet team was a heavy favorite to win the gold. For As you saw, they clearly dominated match play, pool play, excuse me, and they were the favorites for for a reason. So this team, they practiced together for 11 months prior to the Olympics and devoted themselves exclusively exclusively to hockey and winning that gold medal. The Soviets, they played a finesse style of hockey, trying to avoid physical contact while emphasizing speed, passing, and goal scoring. On the other hand, little was expected from this American team, kind of the underdog story. Though talented, they were young, but they also lacked experience in the international style of hockey since they're all collegiate players and play on the smaller rink. Herb Brooks himself privately told his coaching staff, though, at one point, he would be happy with the bronze medal after losing to the Soviet team 10-3 to during that pre-Olympic uh, ex- expedition game. Exhibition game, excuse me. Obviously, he had no clue what would happen in the coming days that more or less would change American hockey forever. Yeah, and let's be honest, Tom, uh, this is obviously, this is the miracle on ice, so for this to be considered a miracle, there has to be one, there, it's a David versus Goliath, so and you need your Goliath, and that would be the Soviet Union. So, the most ca- even the most casual look at the Soviets just shows how dominant they were in that, this time. Um, the team consisted primarily of professional players with significant experience in professional play, or international play. They had won each of the previous four Olympic gold medals in hockey, and 12 gold medals in the 16 World Champions Championships they played with in between 1961 and 1979. 
Uh, the Soviet Union also won 12 matchups with the U.S. between 1960 and 1980, and or between the 60 and 80 Olympics, and outscored the Americans 117 to 26 in that time. Wow, 91 uh, plus 91 goal differential uh, for the Soviets. So even when the U.S. had NHL players playing for them, uh, playing for us in the 76 Canada Cup, they lost to the Soviets twice and were outscored 9 to 2 in that time. The idea of even competing with the Soviets was just absurd on paper. You were just kind of hoping to keep it close. Um, so the victory becomes even more miraculous when you see how badly the U.S. was outchanced that day by the older, more experienced Soviets. Um, so there's a lot of possession-based numbers from the game um, that were gathered through some meticulous game tracking by hockey analytics guru Corey Schneider. S-Z-N-A-J-D-E-R. Schneider, I would assume. Like, it's a weird way to spell Schneider. Yeah. Not weird. Probably, like, the a true way to spell it, but. Yeah, it's more like the analytical breakdown. Like, yeah. Not just your, hey, they got outshot, but it's going to show, like, actual. Oh, yeah. No. I got the analytics part. Here. I'm confused by the guy's name more than the analytics. Uh, just the spelling of that stuff. Yeah, words uh, are hard sometimes. I get it. Yeah. So the most basic metric is total shot. It's, wait, hold on. Words are hard. Tell, how would you? How are you going to pronounce that? Schneider. Yeah, exactly. It's like Schneider. S Z N A J D E R. Bizarre. But hey, shout out to him for putting these statistics together. So the most basic metric is total shot attempts. The total number of shots a team takes, whether they hit or miss the net, or are blocked by the opposition. Uh, it's commonly known in hockey stats, um, the hockey community as Corsi. So it's specifically those taken when both teams are skating five players aside. Um, it's commonly presented to show possession tendencies. So there's a few things to consider here. So in all situations in the game, the Soviets had 52 shot attempts while the U.S. recorded just 25. So the uh, Soviets contributed 67.5% of the total attempts. When taking the same statistic and looking at only five-on-five five situations, the Soviets outshot the U.S. 46-21. to 21. That bumps up to 68.7% of the shot share. But wait, there's more. Oh, yeah, there's plenty more. Uh, when looking at shots that hit their target, the official box score credited, credited the USSR with 39 total shots on goal and determined it had 31 at 5-on-5. Five five. The U.S. had 16 shots total shots on goal and just 7 at 5-on-5. Five five. It really is crazy that they somehow won this game. Yeah, unbelievable. Spoiler alert, I know, sorry. <laughs> you can stop listening, just kidding, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. But it, it really is absurd. Spoiler alert, this was only 43 years ago. <laughs> so actually only six of those 16 american shots uh six of those 16 shots are considered dumpins on goal meaning there was actually only 10 actual shots taken by team usa yeah shots on net yeah 10 actual shots on net from team usa a ridiculous 71 percent of shots on goal in that game came from the soviets but when it was at five on five so full strength both teams at full strength that jumped to 81.6 percent of the shots on goal coming from the soviets now, running a possession deficit that substantial is not typically going to lead to success, and it's somewhat rare to see. Over the past three NHL postseasons, only five playoff games out of 258 have had a possession disparity as large or larger than what we saw in the Miracle on Ice. Yet again, the Soviets losing the possession game was almost, yet against the Soviets, losing the possession game was almost an inevitability because it was kind of like a you can't stop them, you just got to contain them kind of way. Or you just hope you get that hot goalie and hope he stands on his head. Yeah, exactly. Kind of similar in the way that you see like a Mahomes or a LeBron. Like you know that you know they're gonna do something and you just gotta dial down what they're gonna do to you. Strap in, hope for the best. But I mean it's crazier though, because this is a 
college athlete and Jim oh, yeah. Craig, a goalie. This isn't some <laughs> oh, yeah. guy who's been in the NHL for 15 years. Yeah, a man that just played on his head and, and what was in his late teens, early 20s. Just unbelievable. Right. Yeah, it's not your typical, you know, 28, 30 year old goalie who's been there for a while, has done this before, has multiple Stanley Cups or Olympic golds. This is a kid who's 20, you know, yeah. 20 years old. Unbelievable. Um, perhaps actually the most alarming metric is actually the number of scoring chances the U.S. allowed. According to these uh, this manually tracked data, the Soviets accounted for 20 scoring chances at 5-on-5. Five five. So the scoring chances here being unblocked shots that come within a more dangerous area of the ice. Uh, the U.S.'s counterpunch here is that they tracked a total of seven, seven scoring chances all game for the U.S. So that means the Soviets own 74.1% of the scoring chances in the game during 5-on-5 five five situations, but only managed to score on two of them. The U.S., meanwhile... Converted on three of its seven even strength scoring chances. And that's really taking advantage of those opportunities they were given. That's how you win the big game. If you don't capitalize on the mistakes the other team makes, you're not going to win, especially with this type of matchup we have between the Soviets and the Americans. Yeah, especially when you're playing the, the David in a David versus Goliath situation, you need to capitalize on every mistake, at least on most of the mistakes that you're, that Goliath makes. So... The U.S. actually had scored in the final second of the first period um, to even the game at two, being 2-1 up to that point. And then it led to the unthinkable to be in the second. So the Soviets had a goalie named Vladislav Tretiak. He was the... Tretlak, yeah. Is it Tretlak? Tretiak? No, that's an I there. Tretiak. Um, being benched in favor of Vladimir Mishkin. Uh, Tretiak was a true legend in the Soviet hockey world. But he gets no more respect on here because he doesn't deserve it. But then, it, uh, then it, uh, the U.S. actually only mustered two shots on net in the second frame and actually trailed 3-2 heading into the third period. So the U.S. was left with 20 minutes to score two goals, all while holding off the Soviet offensive attack. And after such a miserable period, it seemed impossible against a juggernaut like the Soviets until it wasn't. That's where the man we mentioned a few times in here, the man, the myth, the legend, Jim Craig, Came into play with nine saves in that final frame. So, like we've been saying, I mean, the main reason they win the game is because of Jim Craig. To say he played the game of his life, I think that's just selling him short, and it would be a complete understatement. <laughs> Absolutely played on his head. So one of the big, uh, single biggest reasons the miracle on ice will always resonate is that it's a unique example of what happens when human beings do extraordinary things in unbelievable extraordinary circumstances. So it's probably one of the biggest reasons the world stops to watch the Olympics on a biannual basis in the first place. Like you're just hoping for that. I can't believe that just happened moment. Yeah, man. I don't truly like consider myself a huge like Patriot USA USA type, but there's something about the Olympics that really like does bring that out. There's like a real pride to being an American or I imagine a lot of people feel that for their, their home countries in that time. So yeah, it definitely makes sense. And you see it. I mean, you might not always see it with the U.S., but you see some of these other countries, especially the smaller ones, and like how much it means to the athletes who are participating in the games. I cheer for them. We've won enough medals in this country. You know, if a, if a small country like Togo or some, you know, someone like that can can come out here and win a medal, I'm going to cheer for them all day. Yeah, I mean, we touched on this a couple episodes ago. Michael Phelps, what is it, 29 gold medals or something like that? 23. 20, yeah, something just absurd, and he has more medals than... 70 or 80 percent of the countries that exist it's like yeah we get it we're very good at what we do in most games but like when you see that true underdog story coming along you're like 
you're going to get behind it. It's not often that the U.S. is a true underdog in situations, and thanks to Jim Craig, it didn't last too long. Yeah, here we are. So Lou uh, Valero, a longtime USA hockey employee who helped Team USA advance, uh, who was a scout for the 1980 team, he said, what good are analytics if your goalie can't make a save? So Jim Craig, he played the game of his life. He was a brilliant goalkeeper and one of the smartest goalies he's ever met. Indeed, it actually was the game of his life. So he posted a 923 save percentage against the dominating Soviets that day, recording 36 saves, which far outpaced his 882 career save percentage at Boston University and in his 30-game NHL career of 857. Which is why his NHL career only lasted 30 games. Like that 857 in the NHL, 882 at college where, okay, the talent's obviously not as good in the NHL, but... To put up a 923 save percentage and make 36 saves that day. Amazing. Just how, amazing. How did he do it? <laughs> I'm not sure he even The Soviets knows. probably still wonder to this day. So without Craig's performance, there is probably no miracle on ice. His ability to kick shots away and not allow many second chances were major keys to the success for the Americans in this game. Now, there was little doubt the Soviets had the better team at 5-on-5. Five five. The possession was tilted their way as we've mentioned before and Craig registered an even strength save percentage of 935 in the game so the Soviets they also had seven shots on the power play Craig happened to stop six of them which is impressive too but perhaps most importantly Craig stopped eight of the ten high danger scoring chances over the course of the game which are shots that come from areas on the ice that are most likely to result in a goal so time after time, he was just shutting down the Soviet offense. So I imagine you played hockey a bit. So those high danger ones, would that be considered like, I must imagine like front of the net, from the, fa- like the, the face-off, face-off circles? circles yeah. Because like, when I think of that, and we're talking Soviets here, I mean, Ovechkin and from that, that left side, I mean. Just ripping one time. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of what I think of when I hear uh, high danger. Yeah, so anything, high danger is considered anything from like the uh, face-off dots and in. Okay, cool. Now, low and hard was the shot of the choice at the time as goalies weren't accustomed to the butterfly style that is now commonplace, where the goalies go down real quick, sp- kick their legs out, and then they're perched up on, on their legs, basically. So Craig, he turns aside 25 of the 27 shots that came his way down low. The goals he did allow were pretty much all no-doubters. They included a deflected shot off a defensive zone turnover, a broken play and unfortunate bounce ending with a wrist shot off his, over his glove, and finally, a breakaway from the blue line in. So more or less, he had no chance on any of these. No, there's nothing you can do about those. And it really just truly was a spectacular performance and one of the biggest moments in hockey history. Absolutely. And obviously, Jim Craig was like was the backbone of this performance. But there was a really big pivotal moment in the game. Uh, so to win this game's the American the game, the Americans had to play it perfectly. And I think that's what gets lost more than anything today was just how... You know, every game you do need a few bounces to go your way, but this was not just some lucky break or, or fluke win. Um, as Ke- Craig Patrick, who was one of the assistant coaches at the time and his current Hockey Hall of Famer said, so the thing that stuck in my mind all these years is the brilliance of Herb and his master plan. Because he had a plan in place the year before, he pushed them hard for seven months and he witnessed every and I witnessed every second of it. Um, color analyst Ken Dryden described the Soviets' counterattack like a fast break in basketball. They thrived on odd man break situations But the U.S. basically cut that off by defending with numbers. They always seemed to be three or four players back, which was just a credit to the speed and discipline that Coach Brooks instilled in this team. Shout out Herb. Yeah, if you've seen the movie Miracle on Ice, it's the, uh, again, 
Yes, sir. The, Again. <laughs> yes, sir. The sprints. Again. So despite that possession being so tilted, uh, the U.S.'s defensive st- strategy was incredibly disruptive to the way the Soviets were used to playing. Alexander Maltsev's breakaway goal in the second period was the only instance when the Soviets got behind the U.S. defense for an extended odd man break. According to the zone entry data compl- compiled by Schneider, the uh, Soviet attack gained the U.S. zone 84 times over the course of the game. The notor- they're notorious, notoriously gifted puck movers, um, but they actually completed successful passing plays on 19% of those entries, so much lower than they were accustomed to. weren't able to get that fast break, that fast style moving the way they wanted to. Still 84 times over the course of the game. It just, jeez, man. It, and not, it's nuts. It's excessive, honestly. I wish I was born and could like actually like remember to watch this game. Oh yeah, I know we got the movie like Miracle on Ice, like we or Miracle it's called. Sorry, that's on Disney, but it's like still like to actually like witness the actual game. Yeah, had to be just so much better. I'm not sure that there's been a sporting event that would so collectively be exciting to everyone in this country. That besides this, this is the quintessential bring everyone together moment like yeah it was cool we all everyone gets excited when the swimmers when their medals when phelps was going crazy but i feel like this would have just been like unbelievable especially with the stands and it's like such a small arena and everyone's yeah. like packed in it's obviously going to be a pro u.s crowd yeah like squeezing the lake Plas, little t- tiny lake Plas in new york i mean it's, it was not like they were playing at madison square garden in front of 60 70 000 fans this was very little very little um, in terms of, of attendance. So um, with those those puck entries um, and it being lower than they were accustomed to, even when they got in, in the zone, though, there was next to no room to operate. So they ended up settling for longer shots, not getting as close to the net as they would like. Um, but getting the puck out of the zone was something that was also going to be a concern against the Soviets. And frankly, what the Americans were doing early in, early in the game in that department just wasn't working. So in a TV interview immediately after the game, Coach Brooks, in a rare, unguarded exuberance, explained, "We had a game plan. The players stayed with it. We made a change really early in the uh, real early in the first period. Lou Viro, Craig Patrick, and myself t- talked about a tactical way to prevent them from pinching. I thought we walked out and got stronger as the game went on. So uh, the Soviets used a two-one-two-four check, setting two wingers in hard on the U.S. defenseman, with one man operating almost a rover in the middle of the zone." Uh, kind of like, a, like two, a safety. Two D back at the blue line. Yes, sir. They had two back to prevent the the rush. So to avoid pressure, the U.S. blue liners were instructed to ring the puck harder on the boards to a winger when they retrieved it. Don't mess around with it in the zone. You're getting pressure. You're getting pressed. Fire it up. Get it out. Yeah, just rip it up the boards and hope for the best. But here we go. Then a problem popped up. In that two one two, the Soviet defensemen were waiting for those breakout passes. They were there and they would crash down to try to force a turnover. The center would then cover the exposed point and left the U.S. without a controlled exit of its zone until the fifth attempt, and then they failed to get out on all on all uh, of those early attempts. So uh, assistant coach Viro had experienced similar problems when coaching the U.S. U-20 team at the 79 World Junior Championship just two months earlier. According to him, the U.S. coaching staff abandoned the up-the-boards technique during the game, instead instructing defenders to put the puck into an area behind the net or into the corner for the other defenseman or center to gather while the wings skated up ice. This forced the Soviet defenseman to follow these streaking wingers instead of pinching, and it gave the puck carrier an extra second or two to either make a play or skate up the ice. Um, and according to Viro, it worked, and it was very effective. And uh, Viro himself, like Patrick, and I believe Brooks, is also a member of the Hockey Hall of Fame. And actually, Viro went on to coach the 84 Olympic team as well. 
And that change was a key ingredient, according to him, to changing the game. And I think besides this, you know, in-game adjustment is the fact that the Soviets pulled their goalie. The guy who was in net was a stud and had been. And because he let in a fluky goal at the end of the first period. Definitely changes things. The Soviets the Soviets pull their goalie and send someone out to start period two. So as you're sitting on the bench as the Americans and you see someone new in net, that has to give you some confidence in, hey, we can do this. Like, they're... They're not as good as we thought they were, and now they're scared because they changed their goalie. Yeah, if I remember reading correctly about this Soviet team, that goalie that they had is not like considered like was not like considered great at the time, but is was considered to be one of the greatest of all time, if not the best on the planet at the time. Yeah, and for you sure. chased him at the end of the first. Granted, probably. So it was a fluky goal he left yeah, in, and so. because of that, the coach made the decision to change him and pull him instead of just riding him out. If he rides him out, they probably win the game. Yeah, but probably. You, you bring in some backup who do, didn't see a lot of playing time, it, it makes a big difference. Probably not expecting to see any playing time either. No, not at all. So it just leads to how this is like the right team to pull off the upset. So Herb Brooks, he trusts his young players, even if they are on the younger side. The average age of the American roster was 22 years old, while the Soviets averaged basically 26 years of age. The U.S. had a 19-year-old in Mike Ramsey, while the Soviets had 35-year-old Boris Makalayev playing in his third and final Olympics. So the Americans, they were the best-conditioned team, and then kind of like we've alluded so far, you just, from the movie, you see all the conditioning they did, how much skating. I mean, there's a reason why, because they were just preparing for this game. And with all that conditioning, it allows you to play all four lines, all three D pairs, and take advantage of how well trained you are and how well conditioned. Now, you know, you watch hockey games today and they shorten their bench, but Herb never shortened our bench. That's something that Captain Mikey Ruzioni said in a uh, recent interview. So we're playing the Soviets and we're playing lines one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Mark Wells centered. Phil uh, for Choda and Eric Strobel as a fourth line. Trust me, that was an awfully good fourth line. That's what uh, the captain, Mike Ruzioni, had said about the team. So it just goes to show that because you're rolling those four lines, you can really just keep that pressure or, I guess, lack of pressure and be able to sustain the pressure you're facing Yeah, I and think, be able to get the puck out of the zone. And it keeps the, I think it helps keep the energy up because, I mean, he, he went on to say that in, in that game, they would, within a minute and a half to two minutes, play all four lines. And so you're cycling, you're cycling lines out 15, 30 seconds. So you're just keeping fresh legs, fresh legs, fresh legs. Yeah, there's no chance to be out there for a minute, minute and a half, as you see in today's NHL game where guys will just sit there and, you know, Alex Ovechkin plays two minutes on the whole power play. And next thing you know, he's, he hasn't really scared a whole lot, but he's conserving energy. But that's not something Herb Brooks would stand for. He wanted you to give that full everything you got in that short amount of time and then get off the ice. Yeah, high end, all the energy you got for a short period, get back on the bench, few minutes to rest up get back out there so offensively the u.s players had to cash in on any of the opportunities they got they actually entered the zone with possession on only 34 of the 69 total entries so their chances were almost always one and done not a great way to win a hockey game but that's where skill comes into play with only seven even strength scoring chances they had to be skilled enough to make them count and it just happened to be on this night that they were now each of the u.s Goals uh, shared some combination of skill and or worth eth- work ethic. Buzz Schneider's first period goal was an absolute rocket of a shot. 
Mark Johnson's last second goal was equal parts of hustle and skill as he completely fooled uh, Tretiak with a split-second decision to hold the puck just a tick longer before depositing it into the back of the net. Now Johnson's second goal came on the power play after Dave Silk took a hit to make a play and the puck bounced through a Soviet defender's skates right onto his stick. And then probably the most famous goal is Mike Ruzioni, where he's you know more or less running on the ice with his hands up in the air. You get goosebumps just thinking about it. Uh, I've, been getting, the crowd I've been getting rejoicing. chills just sitting here talking about this. So Yeruzioni had two shots on goal the entire game, the last of which becomes the one you know we were just talking about. Sir. He hits a low, hard wrist shot past a kneeling defender and in a very difficult place for Michigan to get a piece of it. So he said, after the game, I scored a goal against the Soviets in the exhibition game, almost the exact same place in the exact same spot in MSG. So Tretiak was the goalie then, as Yeruzioni recalled, and it was a shot he had taken in practice, so it's something you know he's definitely worked on. Now comes you know the real nail-biting part of the game because the U.S., they have the lead now, but they have 10 minutes that they got to hold off the Soviets. So two shifts later, after that Yeruzioni goal, Vladimir Krutov hit the post from a tough angle and would end up being the Soviets' best chance to tie the game. The middle of the American zone was clogged up, five bodies in white jerseys just about every time the big red machine tried to get into their zone. So the U.S., they would also dump pucks out of the neutral zone every chance they got, forcing the Soviets to come all 200 feet, regroup, and try again. The Soviets had nine total shot attempts after Mike scored, while the Americans only had two. It was basically a prevent defense, so you see that in football, just don't let them get past the sticks for the yeah. first down, and it was torture to the highly skilled Soviets. Like, good luck getting through five guys in the middle of the zone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's you, you clog it up and just get rid of it. I wonder, was icing a thing at this time? Because if it wasn't, I'm just firing that puck down <laughs> down to the, end, the other end all, all day. Yeah, go get it. Now, among the players who had the biggest impact on getting out of the zone was defenseman uh, Bill Baker and Dave Christian. So Baker was 13 for 13 in getting the puck out, while Christian, who was a converted forward, had seven controlled exits. Silk was the best among forwards, helping get the puck out of the zone uh, on 12 attempts and having five successful zone entries on top of the two assists he racked up uh, that night. So Ken Morrow continually broke up passes, delivered hard body checks, and was credited with 10 total zone exits in the game. It's no wonder he stepped right into the Islanders after the Olympics and helped them win four consecutive Stanley Cups, the first of which came that very spring. And Johnson, whom Eurozioni calls by far the best player on the team, had two big goals but was also the U.S. top guy in carrying the puck into the Soviet zone, which he happened to do six times that night. He ended up being the team's leading scorer in the tournament with 11 points. So you could almost go player by player and find contributions. Defending with numbers doesn't work unless everyone is committed to it and they're you know buying into what Herb instilled in them all practice before the Olympics, heading into it, and you know in between periods. So the admittedly, admittedly ironic thing about statistically breaking down this game is that it's one of the better examples of why sometimes the numbers just don't matter, and that's why you have to play the game. So the metrics do help us better understand what those American 20-somethings were up against and how they overcame it. But in the end, the scoreboard will always read USA 4, Soviet Union 3. Dude, it just gives you chills. Like, it just I only want to sit here and bust out a USA chant. Um, there are some fun facts about this game as well, though, uh, that we didn't touch on. There's a lot of people that claim to have watched the game live on TV. 
But the reality is that it was tape delayed for broadcast during primetime. The game was played at 4 p.m. Central, and very few people around the country knew the outcome when it was telecast at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time that night. But See, I think that would be one of the fun things about living in the non-internet era is just that... Yeah, I can't look at my phone. Hey, what's the, yeah. what's the latest update on this game? Absolutely, absolutely. So that's kind of cool. I mean, a lot of people are like, oh, I watched this happen. And like in theory, yes, but like you didn't. Like it had it had been done by the time that you even started watching it. Just, ah, I can't even like such a big event like that. It's tough enough <laughs> when the Olympics now are like tape delayed when they're like hosted in like China. Yeah, right. It's like, oh, well. Ah, I already so, saw the headline. Yeah. Like, thanks. I already got that update to my phone. I guess I don't need to watch the event tonight. Yeah. So one thing that most people might not know is the Miracle on Ice game against the Russians. It was actually not the gold medal game. So the gold medal game actually came two days later when the USA faced off against Finland. And with that uh, win over Finland, they went 4-2. to They take the gold medal home that year. Which is crazy because until you said that, I didn't know that either. So that's pretty fascinating. And then uh, a third fun fact is what's... I, I think I actually do mention this in the movie, though, is that the were, there, there were 20 players on the U.S. team. 13 of those 20 were born in Minnesota. I mean, it gets freaking cold up there. And you got nothing else to do but skate outside yeah, and Minis- play some puck. Uh, Minnesota's not exactly known for their football players or, or basketball players or baseball players, but, man, they've got a lot of good hockey players that came out of Minnesota. Yeah, and they just keep producing to this day. I mean, I wish we still had the cold winters here in this Pennsylvania area. I grew up playing outdoor hockey and building a rink outside yeah. with my neighbors each year. So every day after school, we get to you know get homework done, eat dinner, and then go and play hockey for like two hours before bed. Uh, see, that's awesome. See, I played a lot of street hockey growing up, but I never really played. I, I never played ice hockey. I never really never played ice hockey, even though it is huge uh, in Western New York where I grew up. Um, but this is just a great, great story. The, the movie, if you've never seen Miracle. Shame on you as an American. It's a great movie. <laughs> tells I'm going to rewatch it probably tonight. Yeah, I know. Uh, so get myself jazzed up before bed. Got to go find me a Disney Plus login so I can uh, get access to this, uh, get access to Miracle. But it's just one of those things that I think can really bring everyone together because it's it's not a political thing. It's not a, well, it was kind of a, it could be a political thing because it was the Cold War and it was the damn Soviets. Yeah, and just really rallied the American population. Yeah. Be like, hey. Even though the Soviets, they want to like threaten us with this stuff. Like, if we can beat you in hockey, we can definitely beat you in anything else. Absolutely. So, I think it's just something that everyone could get behind. And um, I wish that we were underdogs in more things because I, I think that that rallying behind the underdog is always a a great sticking point and really gets people going. And and we're not really an underdog <laughs> underdog in much these days. There's no. I mean, when you think about it, like the Olympics with like men's basketball, like. If the U.S. doesn't win gold medal these days, it's like, what the heck happened? Yeah, it's like where you're upset. It's not like you're mad. So that's why I think, uh, you know, where I think soccer is a big one. The U.S. is definitely still not considered a powerhouse in soccer. No, not by any means. Um, I know. I would say rugby is the other one. But basketball, we should beat everyone. Uh, hockey, we should at least be competitive. Right. Baseball I mean, should be very competitive. Baseball's tough, though, because yeah. a lot of, you don't realize it, but a lot of the guys come from countries like Puerto Rico, Venezuela, oh, yeah, the Caribbean. Cuba, a lot of the Caribbean countries. Caribbean, Latin America, Central America produce a lot of phenomenal baseball players. And I'm really excited for the upcoming World Baseball Classic. Oh, it's been a long time. You can't even, you can't forget like countries like Japan. They have a very good team as oh, well. Yeah. Japan, Korea. Um, it's just, it's going to be awesome. There's a lot of really cool sports coming up and um it's just a it's a fun time of year because you know as we'll talk about 
uh, here, here shortly or, you know, the next, next few days or so is the Phillies getting into spring training and what that, the season looks like. But, uh, you know, at least for now, Tom, it looks like that might be all the time we have today. So ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us again. Uh, check us out on all of our socials, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We are actively live on those. Uh, share us with your friends, follow us, like us, send us money. Just kidding. Send us baked goods and beer. Hey, beer tastes good too. But, hey, but, shout, out, shout out to the beer we drank tonight though. It's called oh, yeah. motor oil. We forgot to talk about this earlier. It's a black IPA from big truck farm breweries out that, that says it's a really tough can to read well yeah but they're maryland so like meh but no i'm kidding it's a great beer but yeah black ipa very different my, so my buddy kyle friend listener of the show got this for for me the other day shout out kyle what up kyle um very different 6.2 alcohol uh abv on this one it's different it's malty it's a it almost tastes like guinness to an extent but has that like ipa kick guinness to it with as well hops. yeah Damn. it's much different something I would not have probably picked out myself if I was going to pick out a four pack, but I'm glad Kyle got it for us because it's actually a very good beer. Yeah. I might pick it again. Yeah. I would drink it again. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks for tuning in. Come back and join us next week. Follow us on all socials, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and we will see you next week. And remember fellas, chicks dig the long ball. (laughs) 